The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. You know, there's a certain amount of presumption in standing up to preach on the Lord's Prayer. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus selected the words, and they're just perfect. They're just perfect. And for me to stand up and see if I can explain them and see if I can um, unfold them to you is an act of temerity, of courage, uh, but still it needs to be done. And I explained to you a little bit last week, the reason is that the more we hear words, the more our minds tend to glaze over and we forget the power that there is in this simple prayer that Jesus taught us. And prayer is a mystery, isn't it? It really is. It's a mystery. Uh, and I'm always searching for illustrations to kind of get at these spiritual mysteries. Uh, a couple days ago, my wife and I were at Jamestown, and uh, we love history, and we were there, and we got to stand on deck of the Susan Constant. It's a boat, that a uh, replica of the boat that took the settlers from England all the way to Jamestown. I was amazed how small these boats were. They're really tiny. It took a lot of courage. Um, but my mind was fixed on a couple of pumps in the middle of the Susan Constant, the bilge pumps. And I said, what a perfect illustration of prayer. You see, most of us look on prayer the way that we might look on those bilge pumps. You use it only when you really need it. You see what I'm getting at? When the boat starts taking on water and begins to sink, that's when you get out the bilge pump, right? You only pray when you really, really need it. Well, I really think that we should only pray when we really, really need it. But my goal is today to show you how constant that is. We are always needy of prayer. And I went and I began to ask questions about the bilge pump. You know, I, I don't want to just stand up in front and tell you a preacher's story. Have you ever heard of a preacher's story? So many of them are lies. I don't want to stand up and tell you a preacher's story. Well, the other day someone said to me such and such, and it never happened. I mean, how can you then discern the difference between when I'm telling the truth and when I'm not? So I like to research my illustration, so I started asking about the bilge pump, and I said, now, would you only use this during a storm? And he said, oh, no, they used it every day, all the time. And I was so discouraged, I said, there goes my illustration. I can't use it. But the, actually, the Lord showed me that, you know, the water was seeping in all the time through the boards at the bottom. What they would do is they'd pump a certain number of times as they came out and count the number of pumps per hour or whatever, and then if they had to pump maybe 60 times in that, in that hour or 60 times maybe... Uh, a day or something when they first came out, and then maybe later in the voyage they're pumping 300 times, they know they've got a problem, you see? And this is the way it is in our lives, I think. We're always taking on water, aren't we? Is there ever a day we don't need to come to God in prayer? We should be using it all the time. So maybe prayer is like a bilge pump, it's just we don't use it properly. And we overestimate our, our ability to make it through our lives without praying. And so prayer is a mystery, and Jesus calls us to it, and he's gracious to us, isn't he? He teaches us how to pray how to pray. He says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now let's remember our context here. We're in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount and the whole thing began with a simple statement, earth-shattering perhaps. Blessed are the spiritual beggars. 
Blessed are the spiritual beggars, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Remember that way back when? Well, what is the language of a spiritual beggar? Prayer. And do we pray just once when we come to faith in Christ and then we're done with it? No. We are constantly needy, constantly spiritual beggars. And so Jesus teaches us how to pray. Now, last week we saw that the Lord taught in just very, very few words a simple prayer, a pattern prayer, a model prayer, if you will. And we broke it down into three divisions that uh, uh, we're addressing God properly, speaking to Him. We're saying, Our Father in heaven. Remember, we saw the beautiful balance to that. He is our Father in that He's very close to us. He's intimate with us. He's actually adopted us right into His family through faith in the name of Jesus Christ. I still can't get over that. It's the most extraordinary blessing that God has ever given us is adoption into His very family. But that He should call us Father. How great is the love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. But then we balanced it with the statement, Our Father in Heaven. He's a Heavenly Father. And we saw in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 that uh, statement that Solomon made. You are on earth and God is in Heaven, so let your words be few. There's a separation between us and God in that He's an exalted being far above our ability to comprehend. He's powerful. He's in Heaven, exalted above us. And so there's that balance. Intimacy and exaltation. And because of that balance, prayer is effective. In James chapter 5, it says the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and what? Effective. Prayer is effective because God is a father and because he's in heaven. He's our father in that he cares about our needs and therefore he will listen when we speak to him. It's effective also because he's in heaven. He's powerful. He can do anything. So that there's no request we can bring to him that he cannot deal with properly. So that's addressing God properly. Then we looked at three spiritual petitions. Hallowed be your name. Remember, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the focus immediately on God's kingdom, God's name, God's glory, God's exaltation. Hallowed be your name is a prayer that God's, God's revelation of himself be lifted up here on earth. That people would not worship idols any longer, false representations of who he is, but that we would understand how God has revealed himself to us in his word. And that that name would be lifted up, hallowed, exalted, held to be holy. And then there's the prayer that God's kingdom would come. We saw that God's kingdom came when Jesus entered the world. When he did that ministry, the powerful ministry, casting out demons in his name. The finger of God is upon you. The kingdom of God has come, said Jesus. The kingdom comes when Jesus is there with power doing his ministry. And then as he preaches, he says, repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's time to repent. If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must repent. And so the kingdom of heaven came, in one sense, when Jesus entered the world. But then it advances. Remember, we saw the kingdom of heaven is like yeast, which a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it permeated or worked through the dough. So the kingdom is advancing little by little, isn't it? And each of you who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, who have crossed over from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of the Son that God loves, you have made that journey. You have entered the kingdom. And the kingdom advanced a little bit more the day you came to faith in Christ. Who knows, but today, for some of you who don't know Jesus, the kingdom may advance when you yield to him, when you bow your knee and say, I want Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And thus the kingdom would advance a little bit more. So it's a missionary prayer. Your kingdom come means let let your kingdom advance throughout the world. We're praying for missionaries. We're praying for people who are taking the word of God. But it's also an end time prayer. Many of you are excited and interested in the last days. You're interested in the end times. Well, it's a prayer that the end of the world would come, that Jesus would return and establish his kingdom. Your kingdom come. Amen, Lord Jesus, come, it says at the end of the book of Revelation. At the end of 1 Corinthians, it says, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. 
So it's a prayer for the end of the world. And then finally, a burning desire that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And do you remember what I told you about how we train our kids? How is God's will done in heaven? All the way, right away, with a happy spirit. Anything short of those three is disobedience, isn't it? Well, the angels, they do obey all the way. They do everything God says. Not 90% of what God says. They do it all. And they do it right away. They don't drag their feet. They don't procrastinate. They just do the will of God. And they do it joyfully because they trust in the Father. They trust in God. And so that's what we looked at. And those are the first few petitions. And then we saw that we're going to look this week at more human-centered needs, petitions of our everyday life. And that's what we're going to spend our time on today. But before we do, let's look at some general thoughts on this second division of the Lord's Prayer. Note number one. Look at how all-inclusive these petitions are. There's so much in them. I wouldn't say that everything is in these petitions, but there is a lot more than you might think. The focus is on our needs. Remember what it said earlier? Your Heavenly Father knows what you what? Need before you ask Him. So the focus here is on our needs. Now, our needs, our basic needs, are summed up in this way. Basic physical needs. Give us today our daily bread. Basic physical needs. And then forgiveness from past sins. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then protection from future sins. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, that's the way a child of God should pray. That's the way a member of the kingdom of heaven should labor requests and petitions before God. Now, the world tends to focus on other things, right? The world focuses on daily needs, does it not? It cares very much about daily needs. It also cares very much about material wants and desires. So, and, and, and in praying, if they ever do pray, but in concern about these things, there's a selfish motive. So we could rearrange those worldly requests like this. Give me today my daily bread. And while you're at it, give me today my daily cake. I've thought a lot about that. My daily cake. Give me my luxuries. Give me my sweet things, the things I enjoy. Well, is that what this is about? This is about needs. It's about basic needs. And so we're not to pray that way, not as the world prays. The second note is the order of petitions in the Lord's Prayer. Look at the order of it all. It's not an accident that we begin with the spiritual focus up on God, our Father in heaven. May your name be exalted, God. Do we need to say that to God? Do we need to exalt the name of God? Yes, we do. If we don't, everything gets backwards, doesn't it? It all gets confused. Life gets so complicated at that point. We get focused on ourselves, on our needs, on our cravings, and we forget that there is a Heavenly Father who created everything, who sits over everything and rules over everything. And it is needy for us, needful for us, to come and remind ourselves that there is a God and that His name should be exalted above all things and that His kingdom should come and His will be done. So there's an order to this. Spiritual first, the kingdom of God and all that, and then our needs second. But then within that second division, there's an order, and I think this may be a little surprising. We might expect that God would deal with our spiritual need first before the physical need, right? That we would ask for forgiveness, etc., and then we would pray for our daily bread. But that's not what Jesus does, because he knows we are physical. And if we don't have a physical life, then there's not much point in continuing with these needs. So we're going to pray that our physical needs will be met first, Not that they are of a higher priority logically, but just because that's the way Jesus did ministry. Remember when Jesus fed the 5,000? 
In John chapter 6, the next day he teaches them the spiritual truth. He said, do not work for the food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which I will give you. All right, so he feeds them. And it wouldn't be, make much sense to go to a famine-stricken area and start preaching the gospel while there's people laying emaciated on the ground. There's basic physical needs first. We'll pray for that. And pray that our bodies would be sustained. And then comes the spiritual needs. So there's an order to these. The third note, before we get into the petitions in, in detail, is our total dependence on God for everything. Prayer is an act of humble dependence, isn't it? It's an act of bowing the knee and saying, I can't, but you can. And in that way, it's very humbling for us. Give us today our daily bread. Do we really need to ask God for our daily bread? I remember I went on a mission trip, and I was in Kenya, and we ate well. The Kenyan people feed themselves very well. They have good crops, etc. But there isn't what we would say the variety that you're going to get at your average food line in Kroger's. And when I came back, I was absolutely stunned by the different varieties of bread in an average American supermarket. How many different varieties do you think there are? Maybe 20 or 30 or more? English muffins, rye, wheat, those expensive kind with little nuts in them. Have you ever eaten those? Those are good, aren't they? Too expensive, though. Three or four dollars a loaf. All different kinds of variety. And we're saying we really need to come and ask God that he would provide us our daily bread. All you have to do is go down to Kroger's and buy it. Yes, but where did it come from? God causes the sun to rise and the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. How easy it is for us to forget that. Maybe we should read the early chapters of Deuteronomy in which God gave the people a warning. He said, you know, when you come in there and you settle in cities you didn't build and when you eat and harvest crops you didn't plant, you're going to forget me. And you're going to think it was all right here. Has that happened to some Americans? Oh, yes. Give us today our daily bread is a humbling prayer. Now, we tend to rely on our technology. We have schools of agriculture which teach us how to hybrid wheat and other things so that you always have a harvest no matter what. And so we rely on our technology. We don't need to ask God for food. We just know how to do it, you see. Just know how to do it. When we were in Japan, we saw... Uh, a big building at the Otsuka Pharmaceutical Plant, and they had grown over many years out of one seed, a tomato vine which reached three or four stories high. Totally climate-controlled, inside with special lighting that they had designed, and they were reaping more tomatoes than they'd give you a bag if you just stood there. Just every day, these big, rich tomatoes. And I thought that was astounding. I really did. What I also thought was astounding was the arrogance behind it. As they were describing it, they said, we don't need the sun, we don't need the rain, we just can harvest tomatoes all the time. And I think I'm sad to see that same attitude sometimes in our own hearts. We don't need God for our daily food anymore. <laughs> Jesus says otherwise. Give us today our daily bread. So, humble dependence on God for everything. Now let's look a little more carefully at each of these petitions. We've been talking about them in general. Let's look more detail. It says, give us today our daily bread. Now we're talking here, as I've said, about basic necessities. And yet bread, to some degree, symbolizes everything we need. Look at your body. What would you say your body needs to survive? In order to keep living, what do you need? Well, you need air to breathe. You need water. You need some kind of food. Nutritionists tell you that you need all different kinds of food groups, right? Different vitamins and other things. Back in the... Uh, 18th century, the uh, British sailors sailing all over the world were having problems with scurvy. Now, scurvy is a disease that's totally preventable. Do you know why? All you have to do is just have ascorbic acid, vitamin C. And, uh, but they didn't know that. And so they were dying of scurvy. And then somebody stumbled on this, that all you need to do is put some citrus on, on the ship and then just have the 
sailors suck on a lime, I guess, from time to time, and that's where the expression limeys came from. That's where the British are called limeys because they put limes on their ship and they banish scurvy. So we don't really just need bread, do we? We need a whole realm of things, and God knows what we need before we ask. But this kind of symbolizes basic physical needs. Water to drink, air to breathe, all these things provided as we pray and as we seek God in this matter. But we need God to give it to us. If we don't, if he doesn't give it to us, we won't have it. That's the whole point, humble dependence. And also it says, give us today our daily bread. Daily bread. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of the story of the collection of the manna in the Old Testament. Remember that story? They were out in the desert and there was no food, nothing to eat. God knew what they needed before they asked. He said, I know what you need. I will provide for you. And so they woke up the next morning and there was manna on the ground, all over the ground. Remember? And all they had to do was go out and collect it. But they were under strict orders that five days of the week that would collect only one day's rations, only enough for their family for one day. Now, what would happen if they collected two days' worth of, of bread? It got moldy. Remember, it had all these worms and maggots and all that? And what was God teaching? You have to come to me every day. You can't store it up, all right, day after day after day, and then you don't need me anymore. This is the very problem we meet at the end of this chapter in Matthew 6, that birds do not sow a reaper, store away in barns. We store away in barns. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you start to trust in the barn and you lose trust for God, then there's a problem. And this brings us back to humble dependence again. Give us today our daily bread. We need it every day. And we ask God and we thank God for it as we sit down. It may have come from Kroger's. It may have come from Food Lion. But it really came from God. And when we sit down and we say, thank you, we've seen an answer to prayer. Give us today our daily bread. Also notice, I think, the remarkable, the even amazing juxtaposition, the side-by-side of these exalted prayers for God's kingdom and God's will. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Do you see the range there? That the whole world would be filled with the knowledge of God and that everyone would do His will and that along the way we'd have enough to eat. Isn't that remarkable, the scale of God? Does God really care about great things and little things? Yes, He does. I've actually talked to people before as I've witnessed and reached out and they say, some people say, God is too busy spinning the planets, too busy out there running the universe to care about my little needs. Do you know what this seemingly humble statement is doing? It's putting a limitation on God. They look on God somewhat like He were an inefficiently run government agency where your request is stacked up in an inbox and he'll get to it as he can, allow six to eight weeks for delivery, that kind of thing? Is that God? God says that a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground apart from the will of your heavenly Father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. You see, God's not like that inefficient government agency that can't get around to the requests in time. He can handle it all. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. The whole thing God can handle. Everything. And yet he begins by lifting our minds up off of our earthly needs, our temporary needs, onto his exaltation. That's where we need to start. Hallowed be your name. And also notice the corporate concern here, the body language. All right? Give us today our daily bread. There are people starving in the world. Did you know that? There are some people who don't have enough to eat. And that's a real problem. And we're going to talk more about that as we reach the end of this chapter. When it talks about trusting in God, not being anxious for provision, I don't think a preacher would be fair in, in, in not dealing with the issue of starvation or world hunger. There are problems. But this is the beginning of the answer. When we have a corporate view of this, we're praying not just that I would have enough to eat, but that we would have enough to eat. Give us today our daily bread. A corporate view. 
It's not just whether I have enough, but does my Christian brother or sister have enough? Even my non-Christian neighbor, as it says in Galatians 6.10, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. Priority first to the kingdom of heaven. But then as we reach out, we meet physical needs just as Jesus did. And then I'd like to underscore something you heard me say earlier. Give us today our daily bread, not our daily what? Cake. Yeah, Jenny really likes that one. She loves cake, all right? It's a gift from God to eat sweet things, isn't it? All right? But God does not promise us luxuries. He does not promise us a comfortable, easy life. This is about needs, not about wants. Let's keep that in mind. How easy it is to forget Genesis 3.17. I'll read it again. It should be familiar to you. But this is a statement made uh, by God to Adam. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Are we still under that? Yes. Yes, we are. We have to wrestle, struggle for our daily bread. But God does provide it for us. So we're not talking about luxuries. We're not talking about an easy, comfortable life. We're talking about a humble dependence on God for our basic needs. Paul says this, if we have food and clothing, with that we will be content. Content. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Contentment comes when you're able to discern the difference between a need and a want and trust God for your needs and for your wants as well, but not be too concerned whether you're leading a luxurious, comfortable, easy life. The second petition that we're going to look at today is forgiveness for present sins. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, this is, brothers and sisters, a tremendous need, is it not? A tremendous need, forgiveness of sins from God. Now, guilt for sin is a very real force in our lives. One uh, Christian psychiatrist asked the question, somewhat humorously, why is it that people feel guilty? Because they are guilty. That's the reason we feel guilty, because we do wrong things. If we didn't, we wouldn't feel guilty. And so we do need to pray this prayer. Forgive us our debts, Lord. It cleanses us from guilt. It cleanses us from a feeling of, of, of guilt before God. Guilt is like a cancer that eats life out from the inside. There are two others, I think, in this chapter. One other in this very verse. The other one in this chapter we'll get to later, that's anxiety. Doesn't anxiety eat out life from inside? Being anxious, being concerned, it eats out life from the inside. We'll get to that one later. But what else eats out life from the inside? Guilt on the one side, bitterness and unforgiveness on the other. Have you ever met a really bitter or unforgiving person? Are they happy? Their life has been eaten up from inside. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Both of those found in this simple request. So we see it all provided by Jesus Christ. But we have two main difficulties here, don't we? If we really look at it, there are some problems, some troubles. Question number one is, why should I confess my sins if I'm already forgiven? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why do I need to confess my sins if all my sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ? We read in Romans chapter 3 that we are justified by faith in Christ alone. And so we have to ask, I mean, if I'm really cleansed, then why do I need to do this? Should we kind of cut this little section out of the disciples' prayer and just leave it out? Well, Jesus left it in there. This is for those who say, our Father in heaven, those who are already children of God, need to pray, forgive us our debts. We need to have cleansing, an ongoing cleansing. The second question is, is God's forgiveness of me dependent on my forgiveness of other people? 
Now, this question really comes more acute in verse 14 and 15. Look at it. It says, If you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Doesn't that seem in some way that we are either, number one, that we are working our way to salvation by being forgiven to others, and number two, that we're kept in salvation or we could lose our salvation if we start being unforgiving to other people? So that's a real question we have to answer. Well, let's look at these difficulties. The first thing in terms of confessing of sin, I think the best illustration this you're ever going to get is the foot washing with Jesus Christ, washing Peter's feet. Remember that story? It was the night before Jesus died, and the disciples were together. And do you remember what the topic of conversation was right before the foot washing? Do you remember? They were having a little discussion, a little argument about which of them was greatest. Isn't that ugly? The night before Jesus dies on the cross for their sin, they're having an argument about who's greatest. And what does Jesus do? Instead of saying, now you shouldn't argue about these kind of things, what does he do? He gets up, he takes his robe off, puts that servant's towel around his waist, gets that bowl of water and begins to wash the disciples' feet. Oh, how humbling. Would you let Jesus wash your feet? To see Jesus down there so humiliated, washing my feet. And he comes to Peter who says what everyone else is thinking. Have you ever noticed that? That's Peter, he's a mouthpiece. He just says what people are thinking. And he says, Lord, you shall never Wash my feet into eternity, is what it says in the Greek language. You will never wash my feet. Moments later, Jesus is washing his feet. So much for Peter's prediction of the future. So he's saying, you shall never wash him. Why didn't he want him? It's humbling. And Jesus simply said this. He said, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. I have to wash you. I have to cleanse you from sin. He's not just talking about that. He's talking about cleansing from sin. If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. You can't go to heaven. And so Peter, the extremist, goes the other way. All right, then, Lord, not, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Give me the whole bath then, Jesus, because I really want to be with you. Jesus has an answer for that as well. What does he say? He said, a person who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Because of the gospel, because they believe the gospel, they're clean. But their feet need to be washed. Now, we're talking kind of symbolism here, aren't we? As we walk along life, our feet get dirty. Do your feet get dirty as you walk along life? Well, you should say yes. Oh, yes, they get dirty. It says in 1 John 1, 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar and his truth has no place in our lives. So, Christians do need to confess sin. And why? So that we can continue walking in fellowship with God. So that we can, Galatians 5, keep in step with the Spirit. Stay close to Him and walk with Him. Sin separates us from God and we need to confess our sin to get back right with Him. Now, in terms of whether our forgiveness of sins is dependent on whether we forgive other people or not, I think that whole thing gets it backwards. Let's look at it this way. He who is forgiven much loves much. He who is forgiven little loves little. He who is forgiven not at all, what? Doesn't love at all. So we could say this, that anybody who's truly forgiven by Jesus Christ will be a forgiving person, characterized by forgiveness. And you know why? Because God, Jesus Christ, is going to take your spiritual arm and put it behind your back and move it up like that and say, now listen, I forgave all that debt of yours because you begged me to. How is it you can't forgive this brother or sister? He'll use a preacher like me or somebody else. He'll just use the word of God, Matthew 18. You owe 10,000 talents. Remember that story? 10,000 talents. More than the gross national product of the Roman Empire. That's what you owed. 
and I cleansed you from all of it. How can you possibly not forgive when somebody else comes to you for forgiveness? He's going to make you forgive. Because the Holy Spirit lives in you, and it's a spirit of forgiveness. And so we say, blessed are the merciful, remember? For they, and they alone, will receive mercy. And so we need to get the logical order here. We do not forgive, or God does not forgive us because we forgive others. No, we forgive others because God has first forgiven us. That's how it works. So I hope we have no more questions or concerns about this. But understand this, that all forgiveness, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Our forgiveness of others, God's forgiveness of us, all of it flows from the same place. The cross of Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus just flows down and cleanses us. The blood of Jesus flows through us as we're extending to others the forgiveness. It all comes, all true forgiveness comes through the sacrificial atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross. The final petition here is this. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The evil one. Now, we live in a dangerous world. And I'm not just talking about shootings in school. Shootings in school are dangerous. But there's a greater danger to your soul, and that is temptation. Evil. Temptation pulls on you all the time, doesn't it? Pulls you away from God. Pulls you into sin. Sin is devastating. It's something that should be fought with every fiber of strength you have in your being. And so this is a prayer for protection from future sins. Protection from future sins. And, and we live in a dangerous world because we have a dangerous foe. The right translation of this verse is not, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The right translation is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, who is the evil one? It's Satan. Do you know that you have an intelligent personal adversary or foe who seeks to make your life miserable through his temptations. It says, be self-controlled and alert. This is in 1 Peter 5. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, etc. Did you know you had a personal enemy? You walked in here without one, you're going to walk out with a personal enemy. But I think I'd rather you know it than that you don't know it. He likes to operate in secret. But I'm telling you, people of God, that if you're a child of God, you have a personal enemy, and his name is Satan. And not only that, he's intelligent. He lays plans. He makes traps. He snares you. Right? He tries to draw you into sin. And so this is a prayer that you would be alert, that God would not lead you into temptation, but deliver you out of those traps. I get a picture here of uh, a, a testimony I heard or a story from General Norman Schwarzkopf. Now, Schwarzkopf was in Vietnam. I think he was a colonel at the time. And at one point in Vietnam, he wandered into the midst of a minefield with his men. And some of his men had already been injured, perhaps killed. And he was in trouble. And he knew that anywhere that they moved, that they might step on a mine. And they might be permanently maimed or even killed. And I, I believe the story went that he called in some helicopters and they lifted them right up out of that field. I think that's a good picture for me in this world. As we move into temptation, it's like moving into a minefield. And you don't really know which way to turn. And we're praying for deliverance even from the evil one. And deliverance from all of his wiles and his schemes and his plans and plots. We should be aware of what he's doing. A little while ago, I noticed that my house, which has well water, had no whole house filter in it. Do you know how I noticed that? <laughs> because I looked at the water I was drinking. There was nothing bad in there. It was just a little bit dirty, a little cloudy. And so someone said, you know something, you need a filter. <laughs> so I said, well, where do I get one? They said, down at Lowe's. And so we went and got a filtering system. I cut the line, one of the boldest things I've done to my house ever, cut the main water line to my house, put a filter in there. I was working with my son at the time, and uh, 
I said, well, we can drink the water as it is. I mean, it's not going to kill us. But once I cut that line, we better finish this job. Because if I don't finish it, we're going to be without water entirely. So I put that filter in there, and the cartridge worked for a while and, and did great, and the water got cleaned out, and then the cartridge clogged. And I remember getting that cartridge out and put another one in there, and I looked at all these partic particles. That's what a filter does. Now, I'm going to ask you to do something I don't usually do. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. There's an absolutely vital Bible verse in there that you need to understand. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Now, you wonder, what am I talking about with this filter here? 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says this. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. And God is faithful... Do you see the words in there? He will not allow, he will not permit, he will not let you. Do you see that? Different translations, but he will not let, he will not allow, he will not permit. That is filter language. Did you notice that? He will not allow it to come to you. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape so that you can bear up under it. Isn't that beautiful? God stands up there, and for his children, he filters out and says, no, -uh, no, not that one. Nope, not that one either. Nope, not that one either. Do you remember Satan's frustration? God, haven't you put a hedge around Job? I can't get to him. I can't get to him. That's right. So it's that protection, the filter. He's not going to allow something to come to you that you can't handle. And he's not going to entice you to evil. It says in James 1.13, God does not tempt anyone to evil, but each one is tempted by his own evil desires. When the desire comes and overthrows, it drags us away. We know that. But God is going to filter it out, and Satan can't get at you except as God permits. Don't you feel safe? Don't you feel secure? And so when you pray, I'm back in Matthew 6 again, and when you pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You're praying that God would do that 1 Corinthians 10, 13 filtering in your life. Do it, God. Protect me from evil. Protect me from myself. Protect me from my sin. Don't let my family be destroyed. Don't let my harvest be uprooted. Protect me from sin, God. Keep me safe. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now... In the New International Version, there is no final doxology. It's in there in the King James Version. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And why isn't it in the NIV? Have you ever asked yourself? It's in a footnote, I think it is. There it is. Some late manuscripts say, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. What does that mean, some late manuscripts? You ever wonder about that? Well, the original Gospel of Matthew has been lost. Good thing, too, we'd probably worship it. If it were down there in the museum, don't you think there'd be annual pilgrimages to go touch it and look at it and worship it? So God in his providence said, no, we're not going to do that, okay? What he did instead is he made copies of the original, copies that were disseminated, that were spread all around. And there are thousands of them, thousands and thousands and thousands. Some of them very old, some of them a little bit newer. Some of the manuscripts have the doxology, some of them don't. How do you know which is which? I really don't know. I think the general rules are the older the manuscript and the better quality it is, the more we can trust it. Now, I don't usually like to get into manuscripts and text criticism and all that, but you had to in this case because you're reading through the NIV and you say, wait a minute, where is yours of the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever? Amen. Well, it's just not on the late, latest and best, or the oldest and best manuscripts. Do I think it was part of the original Lord's Prayer? I really don't know. Is there anything wrong with it? Absolutely not. It's absolutely beautiful. It's a beautiful way to end the Lord's Prayer. So go ahead and do it. When you finish the Lord's Prayer, say, Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And don't trouble yourself too much about manuscripts. But I will say this. It's a beautiful way to end. A doxology, a word of praise that refocuses your mind back on God and on His kingdom and on what He 
desires for us. Now, for application, it's just simple. Don't let your prayer life sit there like a bilge pump on the Susan Constant. Use it. You're taking on water all the time. You're taking it on all the time. You need to use it anyway. You have not because you ask not. You should be praying. You should be on your knees praying. And may I urge you to plan out your prayer life? A beautiful illustration of this is simple. Uh, vacation time's coming up. How many of you are going on vacation? You going somewhere? Some of you. The rest of you are just staying here or don't like raising your hands when pastor asks. How many of you are doing X, Y, and Z? Either way, it's fine. Three or four of you are going on vacation. Now, to those three or four of you, I'd like to ask a question. How many of you would go on a two-week vacation without planning? How many of you say, hey, let's jump in the car and let's just go? Where do you want to go? I don't know. Somewhere. Go to the end of the street and then we'll turn left or right. Okay? And as we drive, uh, well, here's another street, hun. What do you want to do? Uh, right. We went left last time. Okay? Where do you end up? Probably at the Food Lion or Kroger's. I don't know. <laughs> would you ever take a vacation that way? Well, why do you treat your prayer life that way? Why do you do nothing to attend to your prayer life? Why do you not assess your prayer life and say, how is it going? Am I growing in prayer or am I sliding back? Am I stronger in prayer now than I was a year ago or a weeker? How are my intercessions? How, am I, how is my faith? Am I trusting God for anything? Assess your prayers. Say, God, make me a prayer warrior. Change my prayer life. Plan it out. Don't just assume it's going to happen. But when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine, for yours, is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Please join me in prayer. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.